0: Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, you can go ahead and turn to the book of Hosea. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, I want to point you to some Bibles that are scattered around the seating areas. They're just in random places. If you don't see one, ask somebody. Their chances are they're sitting on one, and they'd be happy to pass it over to you. Uh, If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we'd also love for you just to take that one. That'd be our gift to you. We'd love the chance to talk to you about anything that you read there. We're in Hosea this morning, the first of our series of overview sermons on this collection of small texts called the Minor Prophets. If you're looking for it and you're having trouble finding it, it's near the end of the Old Testament. Uh, So if you were to turn maybe three quarters of the way through your Bible, chances are you'd be fairly close. Um, There should be a table of contents that will help you there too. book of Hosea. I assume I'm not the only one who noticed that around maybe a couple of years ago it seemed like every month if not every week we were getting this barrage of very public scandals having to do with adultery. I remember there's the Elliot Spitzer case where the I guess he was I think he was a governor of New York, he wasn't the mayor, he was the governor of New York, got caught through some sort of wiretapping I think it was calling using regularly using this call girl and got a big big scandal. And then there was Tiger Woods, of course, with his wife chasing him down the street with a golf club, apparently, shattering his windows because she had found out about one of potentially hundreds of infidelities. Um, There was John Edwards, who had been unfaithful to the wife that he had used on the campaign trail as an example of his faithfulness and trustworthiness. I think the one that really stuck out to me most, though, was probably Mark Sanford. You guys remember this one? He's a governor of South Carolina. So maybe about a year ago, a year and a half ago, he was found to have been unfaithful to his wife when he went missing. No one knew where he was, like for weeks this went on. And his staff was telling the story that he was off trying to find himself on the Appalachian Trail. He had decided to take this extended, some extended me time and just hike for a while. Of course, then a reporter got wise to it all and, and busted him flying back in from Argentina where he had gone to visit his mistress. And I remember what, what Sanford said about it. He didn't even try to deny it. He didn't even try to uh, apologize for it in the way that a lot of people will to redeem their careers. He just said, you know what? She's my soulmate. That was the word that he used, soulmate. And I love her. So it's Okay. I'm sure you guys are thinking what I was. You don't get to use love like that. That is not what love means. I'm sure that, uh, that in a congregation even of this, of this size, there are probably a handful of you at least who have been directly affected by adultery in your family, if not directly uh, in a relationship that you were in. You know what it feels like. It's an image that's vivid, that, that, that connects with our minds and our experiences. Chances are, though, You haven't ever thought of yourself as a spiritual adulterer. That that one's not nearly so common in our frame of reference and how we think about or analyze ourselves. As, As guilty of a spiritual adultery. Hosea, Prophet Hosea is a book all about spiritual adultery and love. It's about the two things that Sanford used together. But it poses for us a radically different relationship between adultery and love. In Hosea, the adulterers are those who have sinned against God. The lover, he who defines what love looks like, is God himself. The premise of Hosea is pretty simple. It begins with this almost unthinkable command that God gives to the prophet. God tells him, Go and take a wife for yourself who is a prostitute. A wife who you know from the beginning is going to be unfaithful to you. And love her. And build a family with her. Then you'll understand the nature of God's relationship with Israel. That's the premise. The first three chapters of Hosea set up the scene. They really... Encapsulate all of the meat of Hosea. Then the next chapters, chapters four through fourteen, give examples that help to flesh out the, the 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 template, if you will, that's set up in the first three chapters. This morning, what I want to do is spend most of our time in those first three chapters. as a way to get some good detail for this image and teasing out what it, how it, um, how it affects how we understand sin and our relationship with God. And then we're going to reach into the rest of the book to pull out other examples that help us to understand it better. I think if we we look at the book on the whole, what we get are three things, and they're all related to God's love and how we connect with it. Hosea presents us with God's love rejected, primarily through Israel's spiritual adultery. He presents us with God's love tested, namely God being forced to vindicate his name and punish those who have, who have rejected him, testing his ability to also love them in the way that he wants to love them, in the natural trajectory or flow of his love to them. And then God's love triumphant. For we find in the book of Hosea some of the most beautiful and vivid descriptions of God's love cutting through judgment and in spite of sin to reach down to us where we are and lift us up out of it. They're images that prepare us to understand Jesus and why He matters so much. Those are the three themes that we're going to pull out of Hosea. Now, obviously, I'm not going to read all 14 chapters, but I am going to ask you to stand because what I want to do is read chapter 1 together in its entirety because it hints at each of these three themes. So would you stand with me in honor of God's Word as we read from Hosea chapter 1. This is the Word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord." So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. God's love rejected. It's the first and I think most vivid of the themes that Hosea presents us with. And I don't know about you, but one thing I've come to recognize about myself, my own spiritual walk in the past couple of years, is I think my biggest struggle in coming to understand my relationship with God and 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 what it is supposed to look like, what it does look like, and why the gospel matters so much. My biggest struggle, the big hurdle for me, is connecting with sin, with seeing myself as a sinner. I think I connect okay with sin as something I do to somebody else that hurts them, because I, I get some immediate feedback on that. But the idea that I am, in essence, a sinner, or the idea even of sinning against God and that being a bad thing, is so abstract. The effects of it are so outside of my experience that it's really hard for me to connect with it. And so what I've come to value more now than ever is any time that the Bible offers us a vivid picture of what it is to sin against God, of what it looks like, of why it matters so much. And I don't know that I've come across a more vivid picture, perhaps other than the fact that Jesus had to die to solve the problem of our sin, than... That that Hosea presents us with here it brings the reality home. Hosea gets right to the point. Verse two of chapter one, God speaks to him and says, Take to yourself a wife of whoredom, have children of whoredom, because this is what Israel has done to me. It's that central image that we're going to try to unpack through the rest of the time this morning. Why this image for Israel's sin? a sin that's summarized by forsaking God for other idols. Why this image works so well I think is become, going to become pretty clear to us as we work through Hosea's details. Because adultery, at its most basic level, what that is is a statement of dissatisfaction in the one against whom you commit that sin. So if you're in a relationship with a spouse, you go outside of that marriage What you're saying is that the marriage wasn't enough for you. That that spouse did not have something that you wanted. It's a dissatisfaction. Could be appearance. Could be the spouse doesn't have the kindness you're looking for. You don't enjoy the companionship you're looking for. It could be that you don't feel understood by that spouse. It could be whatever. But however you boil it down, it boils down to dissatisfaction. And that's precisely the statement that Israel makes about God... When they go to other idols seeking the things that only God can provide. It's a statement of dissatisfaction. To understand that, the first thing I want to do is try to give you a sense of the context into which this was, into which this image emerged. It, it was a context set by Israel and their covenant with God, and it was a context dramatically influenced by the way idolatry worked at this time. So I want to unpack those things before getting too far into Hosea's use of this image so that we can really connect with the image itself. Think about the relationship between Israel and God at this time. It was a relationship formed and guided by a covenant. Abraham was the first one to receive this covenant of promise, but the one that Israel's life was most dramatically shaped by was the covenant with Moses covenant that, that was made right after God had saved them from Egypt and delivered them into this, to the, to the fringes of this promised land. And on the way in says, this is what it's going to look like for you to live as my people. You're going to honor me first. You're not going to turn to any other gods or any other powers of the, of the surrounding nations for the things that you need to live. You're going to trust that I am good enough to provide what you need. That's what it means for me to be your God and for you to be my people. You're going to do that. That's why he starts with the command against idolatry. And then in that security, rooted in the security you have as my people, you're going to love each other like you love yourself. That's the, 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 the basis for the covenant. And what's required of Israel, of course, is faithfulness to him, love for him. And in return, he would give them all that they needed. It's a marriage-type relationship. Each side making promises of fidelity to the other. Now... Just as each spouse in a marriage is pledging to be satisfied in the other, come what may, not to seek to supplement that relationship with any other person, so Israel was asked to make that kind of commitment of satisfaction and faithfulness to God. That's what it means to have no other God besides me. You trust me. This is precisely what Israel had failed to do. That's why later in Hosea, He treats, he refers to their treatment of him, their abandonment of him as treating this covenant, this bond, like dirt, like no more than than dirt. The context is one of a marriage like covenant relationship. You also need to understand something about the context of idolatry at this time because it was rampant. I mean it was the standard way of manipulating your world around you was to seek to do that through these powers that you associated with things like the harvest or fertility or rain or whatever, whatever big physical thing that, that, that controlled your life that was outside of your control. You wanted to bring under your control by hitting the right buttons so to speak. And so each one of these powers was supposed to to go along with an idol that had certain things they wanted from you you if they were going to go your way. So to get rain, you would do whatever the rain God wanted. To get grain and harvest, you would do whatever the harvest God wanted. That's the way idolatry worked. And all of Israel's neighbors imbibed this kind of practice just as a matter of life. They never even imagined that this wasn't the way that the world worked. Idolatry, I guess you can say, is all about material security. You do what the idol requires, and you get what you want in return. That's why the prostitution analogy works so well here. Hosea is, is, is posing Israel as a prostitute who provides services in exchange for a fee. The services or whatever that idol wanted. The fee is the security, the material security that could come by having that idol on your side. So in chapter 2, verse 5, Hosea giving voice to the word of the Lord, and puts words in Israel's mouth, saying, For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Going after lovers, because that's where material security is to be found. Or even more vividly, in chapter 9, verse 1, if you want to look at that sometime. Chapter 9, verse 1, has this very vivid language, accusing Israel in this way. prophet says, You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. What that's a reference to, a threshing floor is a place that you would pile the grain. once harvest had come, and it fills it up. So they are wanting a full harvest, one that's going to last all year. And to get that, they, they prostitute themselves. If the full threshing floor is their wages, whatever the idol requires is their service. Basically, what you need to know about Israel in this time is that they were surrounded by people who were convinced this is the way the world works. And they were enjoying in this time before the judgment, before exile, before Assyria comes through and wipes them out and takes them off. This was just before that. It was a time of unprecedented wealth and opulence, unprecedented since the time of Solomon. It was a time when they were very secure and they loved it. They were very materialistic and they wanted more. And they thought, surrounded by these neighbors who were telling them this is how you get more, that it would be best if they hedged their bets, if they went outside the marriage, so to speak, not just seeking God's favor through their rituals prescribed in the law of Moses, but also seeking favor from these other idols. This is the way one commentator put it. What the nation wanted was a lot of everything. They wanted wealth and the ease and pleasure it would bring. And here's the key. They failed to find Yahweh attractive anymore because faithfulness to Him with all its required self-denial and generosity towards others was hardly what would meet their materialistic requirements. There's the context. A nation enjoying material success and wanting more of it and believing that it comes from scratching the itches of these various idols. So that's what they had done. Now, so we don't miss the weight of what this infidelity is, of what sin represents, as it's summarized by Hosea. Let's take a closer look at Hosea's details. this This is where I really want to drive home. The infidelity that he's accusing Israel of is first and foremost a deeply shameful representation of God and his value, of God and what he's worth. The problem with this infidelity, first and foremost, is that it is a shameful reflection on God and on what God is worth. Israel was saying that God could not deliver what they needed. He, on his own, wasn't enough. He might be part of a portfolio, but needed to be supplemented by what these other gods promised. And that's shameful enough. But really this comes through when you consider what they preferred to God. What they preferred to God, what they thought was more trustworthy than Him. There are a couple of examples that come out in Hosea. One is in chapter four, verse twelve. If you want to turn there, flip over to Chapter Four, verse twelve. Again, the word of the Lord through Hosea says, My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. What is referring to here is a ritual that was that was common at this time in this place in the ancient Near East. Where you would draw this diagram on the ground, like a circle, and you would divide it into different sections. And then you would stand a staff in the middle of it, and then you would drop it. And whichever section it fell in, I guess you marked what each one meant ahead of time, and whichever one it fell in, you took that to be the, the spirit of the idol or whatever telling you what you needed to do or what was best or what was going to happen. They sought after a piece of wood because they believed that a piece of wood dropped onto the ground was more trustworthy more dependable, more valuable than God himself. They trusted a stick of wood to do for them what they didn't believe God could do. Consider chapter 8, verse 4 and verse 6. You want to flip over there. There God, again speaking, says of Israel, They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. They've, in other words, established for themselves other authorities, other powers that they could use for security. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. For it, talking about these idols, is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It's not God. Now, this is a common enough critique from the prophets about the foolishness of idolatry, that you make something with your own hands, and then you act like it has power. But this one's even more specific in this context, I think. The context is them forsaking God for this other thing. What they're highlighting is, is how foolish it is or what it says about God. For them to think that something they made with their own hands has a power that God doesn't have. As if it can get a job done that God couldn't. They believe that an object that they made themselves had more power to supply their needs than the God of their covenant. Now here's the implication of these details. Of not just that they've forsaken God, but that they've forsaken Him for these little piddly, worthless options, as if they were more valuable. This consider this to build on Hosea's graphic description of this action as adultery. Consider that that one of the byproducts, perhaps the most painful one of any any instance of adultery, is the shame that the victim of adultery, the spouse who was cheated on, feels at having been preferred. having having had some other option preferred to him or her. And consider how much more shame there is when the object of that adulterous affair is not some Elliot Spitzer-style high-priced call girl, but some broken-down, emaciated, toothless, drug-addicted streetwalker in some back alley somewhere. Imagine the shame that that wife feels then. And... If you can imagine that, you've got a small step closer to perceiving the implied weight of sin in this analogy. Have you ever thought of yourself as guilty of this sort of adultery? That's the question. Have you ever thought of yourself as implying by your actions or by the things you've thought or by your emotions that some other thing might be more satisfying than God? Or that God isn't satisfying if you can't also have that other thing? take even a very simple everyday struggle like discontent. We all struggle with contentment, right? That is daily. And Consider what what lies behind that common struggle. It's us saying, I could be happy if I just had fill in the blank. If I could just be married. If I could just finish that PhD. If I could just get that tenure track job. If I could just move into that better house. One of the, what, fill in the blank however you want. What you're saying is, I could be happy if I just had that thing. Now consider what you're saying to God. The God who has offered himself to you in a covenant, promising that he will be your God and you will be his people, and that means he supplies everything that you need. Consider what you're saying. You're treating God as, at best, a part of your portfolio. But God demands total allegiance. He demands absolute rest in Him. He demands that you be satisfied with Him above all. What you're suggesting, implicitly, even in something as seemingly mundane and everyday as discontent, is that these things we don't have and that we want provide us something that God does not currently provide us, that a relationship with Him cannot supply. Paul said in Philippians that he had learned to be content, whatever his circumstances, and that the reason he was content, whatever his circumstances, if you go back to the previous chapter, is that he had Jesus. And that compared to Jesus, he said, all other things are nothing but piles of dung. That's Paul's word. Compared to Jesus, all other things are nothing but piles of dung. With Jesus, plus nothing else, I'm good, no matter my circumstances. So what does our discontent say about how we value Jesus? God's love rejected. It's the first and most vivid image that comes out in Hosea. A love offered to a distinct people in a distinct time and place for him to be their God and provide for everything that they needed. That is an amazing act of condescension and love. And it's rejected as if it couldn't deliver on what it promised. The next major theme in Hosea, perhaps the dominant theme in the book, is God's response to Israel's adultery. God's got to judge this kind of open and brash, this kind of open and brash statement about his value. He has to prove it wrong. I think with this graphic picture of what sin is like, I think it should be less surprising to us that much of this book is given to judgment. It's not just that we make through abandoning God in favor of other things or demanding that we have other things in addition to God. It's not just that we're making some statement about the quality and trustworthiness of God. It's also that we're ungrateful for the things that He has already given us. We're making a statement that we don't think the things that we already have and want came to us from God. We're making a statement, in other words, that that if we want more, then we've got to go to the source of what we already have, and that, that's something besides him. God criticizes Israel on that front numerous times throughout Hosea. Hosea. A couple examples, again in chapter 2, where, where this template for the rest of the book is set up. Verse 8, the Lord says, She, speaking of Israel, did not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Same thing in verse 4 of chapter 13. The Lord says, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God besides me. Besides me, there's no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, when they became full, when they were filled and their heart was lifted up, therefore they forgot me. They forgot me when they didn't see that they needed me. They didn't know that these things came from me. Perhaps the most heart-wrenching of all these examples of of Israel's idolatry as not recognizing that God is the one who provides all good things comes in chapter 11, which has become so much more vivid to me now as a father of a nine-month-old who's just trying to take his first steps. In chapter 11, verses 1 to 4, God describes how he feels about Israel's rejection of him. Verse 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved them. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim is another way of referring to Israel. It's the most prominent tribe in Israel at that time. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them as this image of a father who loves his children and who with with great care provides everything that they need and, and trains them in the way that they should go and then is abandoned as if he was not the one who gave them what they needed. So, all this to say, if that's what idolatry represents... Not just leaving God for others, but claiming that others are responsible for the things that God has actually given you. The way that God sets out to expose idolatry in Hosea is to take away the things that he had given to these people, that they are now crediting to other gods so that he can expose how much they really do depend on him and how worthless all other sources of hope actually are. The images of judgment are horrifying, and they are scattered all through the book. But that is a consistent theme among them. That God is taking away the things that Israel is claiming came to them from someone else to expose the emptiness and poverty of the gods they were worshipping. Let's look at just a couple of examples. The trajectory begins in chapter 1, which we already read. It begins with the birth and the naming of Hosea's children. So Hosea's wife, Gomer, gives birth to three children. The second one is called No Mercy. Because no more will I withhold my judgment. Israel had a long track record of forsaking God like this. And he had held off, giving them time to repent. And now he says, no more. I'm going to show them that I was actually holding off before. And I'll show them that by not holding off anymore. The next one is to be called, not my people. Whereas I had provided for everything that they needed, as, as I had promised that I would. Where I was their God and they were my people. Now, no more. No more. I will stop providing the things that I had provided to them so that they will see how much they depended on me. Then the rest of the book starts to flesh this out quickly. The details emerge again in chapter 2, verses 7 through 9 and verse 12. The Lord says, She, speaking of Israel, shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them. She shall seek them but not find them. She's going to go after those things she thought were going to provide her security and they will be like like a mist that just disappears as soon as they, they try to latch hold onto it. He continues... She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the the oil and and the flax and the wool. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees. All these symbols of prosperity, the things that she had enjoyed. I'm going to get rid of them all because she said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. All those things that Israel thought they gained for themselves through manipulating the powers of the world, through prostituting themselves to other gods, God is going to take them away and show how empty those things were. You got these things from your false lovers, God asks? I'll show you that that's not true. The point is that God is going to upend any alternative source of hope or security. Judgment is complete and it's catastrophic and there are images of it all through Hosea, but don't miss this rationale. There is a clear rationale behind it. God is going to expose all false sources of hope and He will vindicate His name, which has been dragged through the mud by a people who claim they can get more out of a piece of wood than they can out of the Lord of the universe. God's name will be vindicated. This represents the testing of God's love. He wants to come in. Love to his people, to care for them. He longs for it. But their actions can't go unchecked. They have made a statement to the world about who he is that is false, and he must correct it. His love is tested. But ultimately, God's love is triumphant in Hosea. Then Hosea, scattered in various places, are some of the most beautiful pictures of redemption that we get in Scripture to me, one of the most remarkable features of the book is that these beautiful images of grace and redemption are scattered amid other promises and talk of judgment. And there's no clear progression. It doesn't just work from... Maybe you noticed it. If you guys read this, you got a chance to read it this week. Maybe you noticed it. It doesn't just work from, Israel has done this thing, therefore I must judge them, but then I will save them. Like you might expect it to. Kind of like I'm working through it logically in the sermon. It, it jumps back and forth. It leaves you wondering, how can God be true to all of these things he's saying he's going to do that seem so fundamentally opposed to each other? How can he love and judge? One of the first examples emerges again in the first three chapters. Verse 10 of chapter 1, in language that evokes the unconditional salvation covenant God made with Abraham, God follows the promise of judgment that he had made earlier in chapter 1 with this. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And I love this, it's beautiful. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. It shall be said to them, Children of the living God. Again, chapter 2, just after another promise of abandonment, that God was going to leave Israel to her choices, to let her recognize the full weight of what she had done. Right after that, God says, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. Not, not a negative place like we t- tend to think of. The wilderness was a place where God met with his people on the way to the promised land. A place of communion with them and provision. I will allure her. I will have mercy on no mercy. I love that. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. Chapter 11, 2, same themes. God follows words of judgment with the anguished cry of a lover who is bound to love, who is love in his essence and can't not express it. God says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man the holy one in your midst and i will not come in wrath. So the question is, how can God be true to this promise of judgment that has no qualification on it and this promise of love that similarly has no qualification on it. It's the great question hanging over all the bible from chapter 3 of genesis where sin is reported until the very end. How can God be both loving and just? The key to answering that question is also embedded in the conclusion to Hosea's story in chapter 3. Turn to chapter 3. This, is, this concludes the biographical section of the prophet. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a Homer and a Lethek of barley. What Hosea reports here in understated minimalist language is what one scholar has called an anticipation in pageant form of Christ's story. An anticipation in pageant form of Christ's story. How can God act in judgment and exercise His love at the same time? Again, we get an illustration. At The outset of this chapter, the implication is that Gomer has sold herself into some sort of sex slavery. It's common at this time. You, you, if you accrue some sort of debts that you couldn't pay off, you sold yourself to pay those debts. You can almost imagine her standing in some sort of slave market. We've all read about accounts of different slave markets in different times and places, and they certainly had them in the ancient Near East. And there would have been no question about what this market was designed for. You can almost imagine Hosea's beloved stripped down, staring, standing in front of a leering audience of men bidding on her services. This is where she'd fallen. This is where her choices had led her. In essence, this, where she stands right here, is what she preferred to Hosea's love. She got what she asked for. And it would be natural to take pleasure in this as some sort of justice. But Hosea wants her back. Hosea wants her back. You can almost imagine him bidding on his beloved in this marketplace and going back and forth with others who are who are also bidding until finally he reaches that winning bid. He's 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 bid fifteen shekels and some barley. And he's got her back again. And now he says, you are mine and you will dwell with me forever. Hosea pays the debt that she owes. Judgment had to be paid. She owed something, right? Her choices had led her to this place and there was no escaping that. Someone had to pay, either her or someone in her place. And God says to Hosea, you go. Go to that market in the middle of all of that shame in the middle of that vivid demonstration of what she thought was better than you, and you buy her back. Now consider the implications for how God relates to sinners, to Israel here, and by implication to us as well. The reality is one that's almost beyond words. We cause God unimaginable indignity. When we deny Him the glory that's His, by claiming through our actions, through our choices, that the fleeting pleasure of sin... Or self-wisdom is to be preferred to him. And God responds to this situation by taking on an even greater shame, by taking on an unimaginable price to buy us back, to pay what was owed, just as Hosea paid out of his own pocket to pay the price that was incurred by an offense against him. So God pays with his own life. The price that our sin, that justice demands be paid. He comes to us as we are, where we are. Just like Hosea went to Gomer, not because she cleaned herself up. Not because she had a change of heart and wanted him back. But because he loved her. God comes to us because he loves us. I think that's what Paul is getting at. I think maybe he's even draw, who knows maybe he's even drawing from his own reading of Hosea when he describes a relationship between God between Christ and his church as one between a husband and a wife and describes Christ as the as the bridegroom who comes into the world to win for himself a bride at the cost of his own life who won't hold anything back even his own life to present her as pure and blameless and without fault in the presence of God to sanctify her Jesus buys his bride Why does God love us? He loves us because he loves us. It's a love that we couldn't earn. Therefore it's one that we can't explain. And it's also a love that we can't lose because it's a love that's as secure as the God who has staked Himself to it, who has said that He is, in essence, love. We can't explain it. It's a mind-boggling kind of thing. But thankfully, all that's called for us is to rest in it, to return to Him from all other sources of hope, from all other sources of comfort or authority, to turn back to him in repentance and faith. It's the call of Hosea scattered all throughout it. It's the call of Jesus himself who came preaching a kingdom that he was bringing and that required absolute allegiance. The call of Hosea is for us to return to the love of God. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Father, for a love that knows no bounds, including the ones that are set by our sin and our rebellion against you. What we pray for is that you would continue to work these images from Hosea into us so that our sin no longer seems abstract or unimportant, but that it, seems, that it seems nauseating to think that we could have treated you in this way. We ask for eyes to see you as you are, as an object of value so great that when found, all else is forsaken to attain it. Would you give us a sense of the value of Christ and what is offered to us in him that makes the promises and the offerings of the idols of this world something that seem foolish and fleeting, that we would see them for what they are. Thank you for Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.